Our Heavenly Father, we want to take a few minutes and think of Matt and Walter as they're out working with the kids this weekend. We just pray that you would bless their time. I pray for opportunities for them to speak into the lives of the kids. Certainly, Father, for those who maybe don't know Christ, that there would be opportunities for coming to faith. Father, certainly this morning as I speak to a subject that's probably close to many of us here, that uh, you would use this in our lives to make us the men and women of God you desire us to be. Thanks again that we can be here today in Christ's name. Amen. Several weeks ago, uh, Charlie spoke to us about the subject of the sovereignty of God. And what I would like to do this morning is to continue that conversation. When you talk about the sovereignty of God, folks, and the, and the struggles sometimes of trials that are part of that, I think it's easy for us to become very, very discouraged. Uh, several years ago now, many decades ago, in fact, I had God pointedly teach me in this area. Now, a lot of you, you haven't heard my testimony. Basically, a quick version of that is I uh, started out of college. I was, had no intention of going in ministry. I was a good kid involved with campus ministries, saved. But about halfway through my first two years of college, God kind of redirected my life, and I went off to Biola University, then Biola College, to continue my education, knowing that God wanted me to do something in ministry. And I spent my time there, and over the time that I was at Biola, I came to the realization, I, th I thought that God was intending me to do something with academic ministries, working with college university students, and uh, I kind of liked the idea of being a professor. I wasn't sure how that would look, but uh, that was kind of where I was thinking God was maybe directing my life. And uh, through the counsel of one of my mentors at Biola, he said, Greg, I think you need to go to Dallas Seminary to continue your education. Now, when I went to Dallas, folks, that was a time period, if you understand what I'm saying by this, there were still giants in the evangelical land. And uh, the experience of going to Dallas was just an amazing amazing time for me as I was able to study under, under just tremendous men of God who invested in me and prepared me for a life in ministry. And during that four years there, um, obviously worked through my education. It was coming down to the time where I needed to be thinking about life after Dallas Seminary and uh, my fourth year there and uh, began having conversations with my fiance at that time it was now my wife, Kelly, you guys all know her, about what do we do? What do we do? And so I began sending out applications, my CV, as we call it in the academic world, to various institutions of higher education, Christian higher education, looking for a position as an instructor or professor in that. And as I did this, I, I was receiving back, as you guys can imagine, letters saying, well, thank you for your, if we have a position, we will let you know about this and kind of, uh, you know, nicely saying we're going to throw, throw it away, okay, to be honest. And after enough of this had happened, I think I'd sent out 20, 25 uh, queries for looking for a position. I finally said, you know what, this is probably, maybe it's just not the right time. Um, maybe what we need to do is sort of step back from this and maybe we just need to, you know, I knew I had to work on my doctorate, so maybe we need to think about a doctorate. Um, at that time, I had a friend of mine from college who was church planting up in the uh, Sierra. And he said, well, why don't you come work with me? You know, we'll do some church planting together, and maybe you can work on your doctorate. It's not a full-time job, but you can help me with the church planting and maybe work on your PhD at the same time, and we'll just delay maybe this opportunity of working in a Christian college. 
And so uh, Kelly and I, we didn't have any money. We were, we were broke. Both of us were in school. And so we ended up putting a deposit on an apartment in Sacramento thinking that uh, I would work on my doctorate maybe at UC Davis. Uh, her brother was there and thinking maybe this is a place we could do it. I'll do this church planning and just sort of delay going into a Christian college until I get my PhD and then begin looking again then. Now, in terms of timing, I tell you this story, folks, because this is, I'm graduating in May. I'm getting married in June. I get a call in late April from this guy. And I don't, I don't know how he got to this day. I'm still, you know, it's kind of strange how he found my number back in Dallas. But he calls me up, introduces himself as the president of this Christian college, and says, Greg, I've seen a copy of your, your resume, your vitae, and I think you'd be an ideal fit for us. And so we had about a 45-minute phone call. He was very excited. He wanted to do a bunch of stuff with outdoor education. I had been involved with the uh, with mountaineering industry for years and, and actually wrote my master's thesis on, on this stuff. And he was extremely excited. He says, look, when do you graduate? I said, well, I graduate in, in May, and I'll be heading back to California then. He says, look, look, he says, this is exciting. He says, we can't wait to have you out here. He says, I... Do me a favor. He says, as soon as you get back to California, call me. Let's get this thing worked out. I said, great. So I get on my phone. I call Kelly, my fiance at the time, and says, you won't believe what just happened. Explain the whole story to her. And I said, we're going to have to shut down this idea of going to Sacramento um, and uh, doing that. I need to be available for this guy. This is, this is opened up. Uh, this is going to be great. This is what we've been training for. This is why I went to seminary. And so, guys, you know, we, she reminded me we're going to lose our deposit in Sacramento. It's like, that's fine. We'll eat it. God's in control, right? Um, and so we ended up, you know, I, it was funny. I had friends at seminary saying, I can't believe you did this. You know, nobody gets a position out of, out of uh, seminary. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm just thrilled. We graduate. My friends are high-fiving me and at graduation. I get in the car. I drive back to California. I remember calling this guy up friends, and I will have a, it was a conversation to this day I will never forget. I get on the phone with him. He says to me, oh, yeah, Greg, I remember you. Yeah, if anything opens up, we'll call you. Now, folks, I understand about the sovereignty of God. I teach it. I could bore you into, into coma over determinism, indeterminism, self-determinism, and the sovereignty of God. But at that moment in my life, I thought, what in the world, God, are you doing? I remember getting in my car, driving down to the beach, folks, and I had the grandest argument with God you could ever imagine. What are you doing, God? I'm getting married in three weeks. I have no job prospect. I don't know where to live because I don't know where my job is. I spent four years, and I, forgive me if you're from Texas, but the godforsaken state of Texas, why Californians want to move there, I don't know. And I, I always get confronted by, by the way, when I say that, I get confronted by Texans, you know. But I lived four years there. It would not have been my first choice of a place to live. What in the world are you doing with my life? Now, folks, at that point, the sovereignty of God is not a theoretical, theological construct. It is a real reality. 
God, what are you doing? Now, folks, I'm drawn to a person in Scripture who underwent probably a similar kind of experience with God. Now, I want to invite you this morning, if you have your Bibles, to turn it with me, or if you're using your iPhone or your iPad, scroll on up with me to Genesis chapter 37, the story of Joseph. Most of us know the story, but let's kind of quickly this morning go through it as I kind of highlight to you some points out of his life that maybe will be an encouragement to you if you're going through some difficult times right now. Now, to understand this, Genesis, by the way, if you don't know where Genesis is, first book of the Bible, so it's easy, just start, turn left, and you'll get it, turn right, I mean. Now, Genesis is an easy book to understand, guys. You can, if, you, if you're kind of new in the faith, you don't know what Genesis is about, Genesis is actually divided into two parts. Chapter 1 to 11 are four major events, creation, the fall, the flood, the tower. Chapter 12 to chapter 50 is four key individuals. Talks about Abraham, then Isaac, then Jacob, and then finally Joseph in chapter 37. Now, if you have your Bible open, I'd like you to look at Genesis 37, where we're introduced for the first time to the story of the son of Jacob, this, this person by the name of Joseph. Chapter 37, verse 1. Now, Jacob lived in the land where his father had sojourned in the land of Canaan. These are the records of the generations of Jacob. Joseph when 17 years of age, now make a mental note on that, folks. Notice the age. I want you to see this. It's going to be important in the story. He's 17 years old. He is pasturing the flock with his brothers while he is still a youth, along with the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought back a bad report about them to their father. Now, one of the first things we see about Joseph is that he's a bit of a tattletale. Something happened, we don't know. If you're a shepherd, by the way, in this time period, your sheep were your retirement portfolio. Does that make sense? This was their money. This was the family investment. This is, you know, I know some of you guys, you know, would you trust your teenage kids to manage your portfolio? Probably not. But here is this young man taking care of the sheep, and something had happened, we don't know the incident, where he had to report back to his father that the other sons were not doing what they were supposed to do with the family herds. My guess would be sanctified imagination, probably irresponsibility. Now that sets off kind of an edge. They already don't like Joseph, but let's continue the story. Look at verse 3. Now Israel, that's Jacob, it's another name for Jacob, loved Joseph more than all of his other sons because he was the son of his old age and he made him a varied colored tunic. His brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, so they hated him and could not speak to him on friendly terms. Not only was Joseph this tattletale in their viewpoint, he was also the favored son. So much so that Joseph had been given this multicolored tunic, This, and by the way, dyes in Israel this time are very expensive. This would not have been a cheap thing. Gives him this garment that causes him to stand out. Now, some of you come from families where there is a favored son or a favored daughter, and you know that doesn't usually play well into the family dynamic. So the second thing we see about Joseph is he's already, you know, in addition to being a tattletale, he's a favored son, and it gets better. Keep going. Verse 5. Then Joseph had a dream, and when he told his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, Please listen to this dream which I have had. For behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and lo, my sheaf rose up 
and also stood erect. And behold, your sheaves gathered around and bowed down to my sheaf. And his brothers said to him, are you actually going to reign over us? Or are you really going to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and his words. Now, verse 9 and what follows is a reiteration of that dream. In other words, you can imagine they're having the family quiet time, my imagination, and Jacob says, do you guys have anything you'd like to share what God's doing in your life? And Jacob, Joseph raises his hand and says, yeah, I've got something God revealed to me that you're all going to bow down to me someday. Now, you can imagine that probably is like vinegar to them. One of my mentors used to say, it's like horseradish. You know, you got to be kidding us. You know, not only is this guy a tattletale, they don't like him for that. Not only is he a favored son, they don't like him for that. Now he's telling you, all of you guys, you're going to bow down to me. And in this culture, that would not be appropriate because he's one of the younger sons. The older sons have prominence. You can imagine they are not liking this guy. Now, for the sake of time this morning, guys, I'm going to have to skip us through this account. What I'm going to encourage you to do is if so inclined, maybe later, take some time to read this account in more detail. I'm going to have to hit the high points because of just limitations physically today. But what happens following this is that Joseph sends, actually, I'm sorry, Jacob sends his sons to go take care of the flocks, and they're moving around. He needs to know how are they doing. Now let's look at verse 14 as I jump around a little bit here. Jacob says to him, go now and see about the welfare of your brothers and the welfare of the flock. Notice he's concerned about the flock. That kind of gives me an indication that he was concerned these guys were not doing what they're supposed to be doing. And bring back word to me. So they went from the valley of Hebron and he came to Shechem. Now again, those of you who are with me in Israel, this is the ridge route from Hebron. You can take that straight along the ridge past Jerusalem all the way up to Shechem. It's a distance of about 60 miles. It's a, it's a good trek. It's a, it's a ways. And goes up to this area of Shechem. When he arrives there, a man found him, and behold, he was wandering in the field. And the man asked him, what are you looking for to Joseph? He said, I'm looking for my brothers. Please tell me where they are pasturing the flock. And the man said, they have moved from here, for I heard them say, let us go up to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. Now, Dothan's just a little bit north of Shechem. I don't have a map up here, guys. But Dothan is, the name means two wells. It's a place where there was water, probably because of the herds. They needed to bring them in there to, to water and feed them. Uh, but Dothan is also significant because it's one of the routes that the International Coastal Highway passes through on the far east side. That's going to play in the story in a moment. So they're here watering the flocks. He hears they're up there. Joseph goes up, and look how they, they greet him. And when they saw him from a distance, verse 18, behold, he came close to them, and they plotted against him to put him to death. They said to one another, you can hear this just dripping with sarcasm, folks. Here comes the dreamer. Now let the, come and let us kill him and throw him into one of these pits. And we'll say a wild, piece, wild beast devoured him. And then let's see what becomes of his dreams. Now again, for the sake of time, folks, let me kind of paraphrase what the narrative does here. They see Joseph coming and like, oh great, here he is. They decide, let's just kill him, we'll call it good. Come up with some kind of excuse. Eventually, if you read the narrative, what happens is brothers will seize them. They throw them into a dry pit, a dry well, actually, and then sit down and think, what are we going to do with this kid? 
Now, one of his older brothers, Reuben, will decide to say, okay, let's not kill him. That's not a good idea. So they concoct an idea. This is why Dothan is important, folks. The Dothan being an important international corridor, there is a group of Midianite traders moving through that corridor on their way to Egypt. And they decide, hey, why don't we sell him to the Midianites? We'll pick up a little change. He's out of our hair. We'll never see him again. Problem solved. And that's exactly what they do. They sell him to the Midianites, and the Midianites haul him down to, Israel, down to Egypt. Now, I can imagine, folks, in my sanctified imagination, what must be going through Joseph's mind at this point. Sold into slavery by his own brothers. His brother's looking at him, probably, you know, waving at him as he's being hauled off to Egypt, saying, hey, buddy, see how your dreams work out for you now? Our problem solved. So they concoct a cover story, go back to Jacob, and basically say he was killed by a wild animal. Now, folks, right there, I think if we would actually place ourselves into Joseph's, he had plenty of time, guys. It would have taken him weeks to get from Dothan down to Egypt. He had plenty of time to think about, so God, what's those dreams about? I'm in slavery now. Now, I'm going to skip past chapter 38, guys. Just jump over it in your Bible. That's another interlude. It goes back to Judah, uh, the story of Judah and Tamar, who's mentioned, by the way, in Matthew chapter 1, uh, when uh, Pastor Matt was teaching through that. We pick up the story of Joseph in chapter 39. So turn to chapter 39. When we look at verse 1. Now, Joseph had been taken down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an Egyptian officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the bodyguard, bought him from the Ishmaelites, these Midianites who had taken him down there. Now look at verse 2. This is an important refrain in the narrative. The Lord was with Joseph, so he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. Now he's sold into slavery. He's picked up by Potiphar, the captain of the Pharaoh's bodyguard, very important dignitary in the land of Egypt at this point. God is with him, but I don't, I honestly think, folks, I don't think Joseph is cognizant of how God's working behind the scenes. He's seeing success. I imagine in Joseph's mind, he's thinking, all right, let's make, you know, let's make lemonade out of the lemons of life. You know, I'll just do the best I can here and try to make the best of it. And he does. He's doing a good job. He actually rises up in Potiphar's household. He's given positions of prominence and leadership. This man was obviously very wealthy, very influential. Everything is going good so far until... Look at verse 5. It came about that from that time he made him overseer in his house and over all that he owned. The Lord blessed the Egyptian's house on account of Joseph. Thus the Lord's blessing was upon all that he owned in the house and the field. I mean, Potiphar's not seeing God's hand in this. What Potiphar's seeing is, hey, this kid's luck. This kid's good. Things are going well. For a bad situation, folks, this is actually turning out okay. So he left everything, verse 6, he owned to Joseph's charge, and with him there was not anything he did not concern himself with except the food which he ate. And then it makes this comment, now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. And it came about after these events that his master's wife looked with desire at Joseph, and she said, lie with me. Now folks, in my outline, if you looked in the, in the notes, God's plans 
many times involve trials in our lives. Being sold into slavery, folks, that's a trial. That's not a good thing. If I were to go around the room, you and I were to sit down at, for coffee over at Starbucks, we could probably, you could probably tell me stories about this. Health issues, children's issues, job issues. Everybody in this room, we could probably tell some kind of story about trials in our lives. I think it's, we sell people a disservice when we present Christianity as all your problems will go away. That's not true. God's plans for our lives often will involve. I had a guy, one of my professors at Biola used to say it this way. He said, any person that God will use greatly, he will break significantly. And I remember hearing that as a young undergraduate, letting it roll right through my ears until later in my life, particularly the story I'm about to finish up with you guys here. God's plans involve trials, but God's plans, number two, guys, often involve testing. Mrs. Mrs. Potiphar comes to Joseph, and she's got desires for him. Now, guys, this woman was probably extremely beautiful. She had access to all the beautification that Egypt could offer. She was attractive, and you know, you could see in Joseph's mind, probably churning back in the back of his mind, hey man, you threw me under the bus, God, so why not? Nobody'll know. But that's not what Joseph does. Now look at the text. And it came about after these events that his master's wife, verse 7, looked with desire at Joseph, and she said, Lie with me. Verse 8. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, look. My master doesn't concern himself with anything in the house, and he's put all that he owns in my charge. There is no one greater in this house than I, and he's withheld nothing from me except you because you are his wife. Now look, look, at this, look at the attitude of this young man. Folks, this is tremendous. How then could I do this great evil and sin against God? He's still got his perspective. And we would look at this, folks, and we go, yes! He's keeping it, he's keeping it strong. Now, I would hope that, you know, he's, he's being faithful to God, he's doing everything he's, he thinks to know right, and we think, that's great, it's going to end up well. No, it doesn't end up well, folks, that's the whole point. Look what happens. She does this day after day, verse 10, and finally one day, and let me just summarize the text for you guys, she comes in the house, there's nobody around, she puts her, puts her solicitations onto him. He says no. She grabs his coat, and he just takes off running, which I think there's a lesson there. And then concocts a story that basically he came on to me. Absolute lie. Now let's pick up the story. I think that it's very insightful here. Look at verse 19, chapter 39. Now it came about when his master heard these words of his wife, which he had spoken to him, saying, this is what your slave did to me, that his anger burned. Potiphar is really ticked off. And by the way, folks, I don't think it was directed at Mrs. Potiphar. I trusted you with everything, and you do this to me? 
he is not a happy guy. So what does he do? He throws Joseph into prison. Now think about it, folks. We expect the story to, thank you, Joseph, you're a man of integrity and honor. But instead, because of somebody else's lie, he gets nailed for it. This is the second time now this young man's been smacked down. Sold into slavery, falsely. Accused of something he did not only didn't do, but was showing every bit of integrity. And what does he get? He gets hammered for it. I mean, how many of us, frankly, folks, would walk away from God in a situation like that? Say, where are you? Were Joseph's dreams going through his mind at this point? I don't know. But obviously, God, you must have been mistaken because there ain't no way I'm ruling over my family. And now in an Egyptian prison for nothing I have done to this point wrong. I've been doing everything right, everything as you've told me to do, and yet here I am. Now, as you guys know, eventually in the prison, again, in fact, we see this refrain. Look at verse 21. The Lord was with Joseph and extended kindness to him. Again, I don't think that Joseph was necessarily aware of that, frankly. He would make the best of his situation. He sort of says, now I've got lemonade, and I've got to go to the next level, so we're going to have to do something with this. So he finds himself where the, the chief jailer begins trusting him a little bit. You know, he kind of works his way back up, and that's not much of a system, guys. Egyptian jails are not club-fed, you know what I'm saying? But he makes the best of it, and uh, he's in there, and it's going okay. And then eventually, if you read the story, and I want to summarize this because I want to be sensitive to time with all of you. Joseph has the chief cupbearer and the baker thrown into prison with him. And these two guys have dreams. And in the ancient world, guys, dreams are significant. They know there's something about this dream that they need to pay attention to, but they're not quite sure what to do with it. And so look at what happens here. Look at chapter 40, verse 1. Then it came about, after these things, the cupbearer and the baker for the king of Egypt offended the lord, the king of Egypt. Pharaoh, and if you don't know what a pharaoh is, that's the king. The pharaoh was furious with his two officials, the chief cupbearer, and he threw them into the prison. So he confined them in the house, verse 3, of the captain of the bodyguard in the jail, the same place where Joseph was imprisoned. And by the way... That's what we call providence. Hmm. Just happens to end up there. The captain of the bodyguard put Joseph in charge of them, and he took care of them, and they were in confinement. And now look at the language here, guys, for some time. Circle, circle around that. Then the cupbearer and the baker and the, for the king of Egypt, who were confined in jail, both had a dream. The same night, each man with his own dream and each with its own interpretation. So when the morning came, verse 6, Joseph observed them, and behold, they were dejected. They were just kind of like, oh, this isn't good. You got this dream. It's a significant dream. I don't know what the dream meant. Uh, what, What do I do with this? And what does Joseph say? He asked the Pharaoh's officials who were with him in confinement in the master's house, why are your faces so sad? Now, for the sake this morning of time, folks, to summarize this, both these men recount their dreams to Joseph. First, the cupbearer gives his dream, and he says, oh, I got good news for you. 
few days from now, you're going to be giving the cup back to Pharaoh. He's going to reinstate you. Imagine the baker saying, oh, that's good. But his dream, not so good. Three days from now, Pharaoh's going to hang you. He's going to execute you. Now, I want you to notice the end of this chapter here, folks. Let's go to verse 21. He restored the chief cupbearer to the office and put the cup into Pharaoh's hand. That's exactly what he predicted would happen with the cupbearer. But he hanged the chief baker just as Joseph had interpreted them dreams. Now, when you come to verse 23, guys, look at it with me. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. Now, folks, again, going through the story, if you read this, there's a point at the end of this where he recounts the dreams where Joseph says to the cupbearer, go back and look at the text, I won't take the time, but he basically says, when you stand before Pharaoh, do me a favor, do me one favor, tell Pharaoh I am here unjustly, I didn't do anything to deserve this. You're standing before the one person in this country that can do something about my situation. And I imagine in Joseph's mind, he's thinking, okay, God, this was your way of getting this thing solved. I'm here unjustly. I was sold into slavery unjustly. I was put in prison unjustly for nothing I did. I've done everything right. Maybe, God, this is your way of dealing with this. So cupbearer, when you stand before him and you're, you're back in good standing with the Pharaoh, do me a favor. That's what the text says. And tell him I'm here unjustly. And then we read these words at the end of chapter 40. Cupbearer forgot him. Now, folks, I imagine in Joseph's mind, you know, he watches the, the cupbearer go off back to Pharaoh. And he's thinking, oh, man, it's only going to be a matter of hours. I'm out of here. And those hours turn to days. Those days turn to weeks. Those weeks turn to months. And what we're going to see in chapter 41 those months turned to years. Think of the despair that must have been in this young man's life. Your hopes are gone. Now, I know some of you have been there where there is no more hope left. That's a tough place to be, folks. In fact, look at verse 41. Now, it happened at the end of two full years. Pharaoh has a dream. And by the way, when Pharaoh has a dream, everybody pays attention to that. And Pharaoh has this dream, and he's not sure what this dream means, although he knows it's significant. And uh, he's troubled by this dream, and when the Pharaoh's troubled, so is everybody else. And so he brings in all of his conjurers, his wise men, his counselors, and say, okay, guys, tell me this dream. And of course, they don't know what's going on. They can't do it. And again, you get this kind of this light goes on in the mind of the cupbearer. He goes, bing, hey, there's a kid back in prison. He's pretty good at this. In fact, look at the text with me. Look at verse 9 of chapter 41. Chapter 41, verse 9. Then the chief cupbearer spoke to Pharaoh, saying, I would make mention today of my own offenses. Pharaoh was furious with his servants, and he put me in the confinement in the house of the captain of the bodyguard, both me and the chief baker. We had a dream on the same night, he and I, each of us dreamed according to the interpretation of his own dream. Now, a Hebrew youth was with us, doesn't even remember his name, 
He was a servant of the captain of the bodyguard, and we related to him, and he interpreted our dreams for us. To each one of us, he interpreted according to his own dream. And it came about just as he interpreted for us, so it happened. He restored me in my office, but hanged him. In other words, the, the cupbearer says, hey, Pharaoh, there's a kid that we told our dreams to, and this kid nailed it. Exactly what he said, that's what happened. Now, Pharaoh's pretty desperate at this point, so look what happens. Look at verse here, look at verse 14. Then Pharaoh sent, called for Joseph, and they hurriedly brought him out of the dungeon, and when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, you can imagine what kind of mess this kid was probably looking like, they bring him to Pharaoh. Pharaoh says to Joseph, I hear you can, I hear, I've had a dream, but no one can interpret it. And I've heard it said about you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Verse 16, Joseph then answered Pharaoh, said, It is not to me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Now, again, many of you know the story. Pharaoh asked Joseph, What does my dream tell me? And Pharaoh is told by Joseph that the dream is a warning by God. In fact, he's had two dreams, both of them the same thing. That there are going to be seven years of plenty in the land. It's going to have a bumper crop followed by seven years of a global famine that will decimate the countryside. Now, interestingly enough, Pharaoh didn't ask Joseph for this, but Joseph offers, maybe this is what you ought to do. In light of your dream, this is what I'd maybe recommend to you. Okay, let's drop down, look at verse 33. Now let Pharaoh look for a man discerning and wise and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh take action to appoint overseers in charge of the land and let him exact a fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt in the seven years of abundance. Then let them gather all the food of these good years that are coming and store them up in grain for food in the cities under Pharaoh's authority and let them guard it, and let the food become as a reserve for the land for the seven years of famine which will occur in the land of Egypt. Now, I, I wonder, guys, look at verse 37. This, this verse just fascinates me. Now, the proposal seemed good to Pharaoh and to all of his servants. Then Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find a man like this in whom is a divine spirit? This kid's smart. This kid's good. So Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has informed you of all of this, there is no one who is discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house. And according to your command, all my people shall do homage only in the throne. I will be greater than you. Pharaoh said to Joseph, see, I have set over all the land of Egypt. And he takes off his signet ring. His signature, the signet ring, folks, was a symbol of power. And gives it to Joseph. Okay, I won't go over all the the details here. But I want you to look at verse 46, guys. I'm going to see how your math is this morning. Now, Joseph was 30 years old when he stood before Pharaoh. Our story started, he was 17. For 13 years, folks, this young man had no direction what God was doing in his life. Now, folks, I complain when it's 13 minutes, not 13 years. And here he is standing as the number two man behind the Pharaoh and the queen of Egypt. He's actually third, I guess you might say. Third most important man in this country in control of everything. 
Now, at least my third point here, guys, God's plans in our lives will often involve trials. And in those trials, they're testing. Do you really believe me? Can you trust me with this? But oftentimes, guys, God's plans take time. And boy, as Americans, we are not good at this. We are very impatient. I am very impatient. I find myself many times saying, Lord, how long do I have to go through this? 13 years this young man goes, and now he's standing as, you know, from prison rags, folks, to palace riches in a matter of minutes. And I can imagine Joseph thinking, wow, I, I never saw that coming. <laughs> now, eventually, as you guys know, and I, again, I, I don't have the time, and I would like you guys to maybe read this over on your own when you get some leisure time this week. But in Joseph's life, eventually he rises up in prominence. The seven years of plenty happen. They are storing the grain. They're storing the produce, preparing for this time of famine. And when this famine hits, it's a global famine. It's a, it's a catastrophic famine. And Jacob's family is feeling the effects of this back in the land of Israel. And eventually they hear word that there's food down in Egypt, so they send the brothers down to go get the food. And guess who they encounter? And guess who they bow down before? It's a fascinating story. I love kind of thinking about it, how Joseph recognizes them, but they don't recognize Joseph. Joseph looks like an Egyptian to them. And they will bow down before him seeking grain, and then there's a whole story how he, he kind of gives them their money back, and at one point, you know, he says, you gotta, I think you're spies. He's kind of playing with them a little bit. And eventually, guys... The whole family is brought down to Egypt. And I want you to, to come to the end of the book of Genesis. Look at Genesis chapter 50. And I'd like you to look at verse 20. This says something about this young man. You know, his brothers had sold him into slavery, had abused him. He had every right. When Jacob dies at the end of the book of, of Genesis, the father passes away, and the brothers are now fearful of revenge. And man, Joseph could do it. And they're fearful of this. And Joseph makes this comment, very famous verse in Scripture. Look at chapter 50, verse 20. Then his brothers, I'll back up to verse 18. Let me read it to you as we come, drop into it. Then his brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not be afraid, for I am, I, am I in God's place? Look at verse 20, guys. As for you, you meant it for evil against me. But God meant it for good in order to bring about the present result to preserve many people alive. God used this as a way of preserving the family, to keeping the covenant alive. Now, folks, my last point this morning is yes, God's plans will involve trials for our lives. Yes, it is true, number two, that God's plans will often involve testing us. I, I remind my classes at the university, I will test you as your professor, but please understand that God will test all of us. And God is famous for what I like to call pop quizzes. God will test us. Can you trust me? 
And oftentimes that takes time. This is not immediate. This is not real quick. Sometimes it can take years, decades even. We see this in the case of Joseph. But guys, my final point this morning is that God's plans will triumph. God accomplishes what he wants. Could Joseph have taken out revenge on his brothers? Certainly. We would would probably understand why, but he didn't. This was God's way of preserving us. You meant it for evil. You were just trying to get me out of your hair. And God used that for his ultimate purposes. Now, folks, I begin this morning with a story. You know, it was a tough situation. You know, when that guy, I talked to him on the phone, I realized I had just been hung out to dry. I, I had a serious serious struggle with God's control of things in my own life. You know, I'm getting married now in three weeks. I have no job. I have, I'm away from my ministry connections. You know, the alumni placement. You know, I, I had canceled everything I had planned to do, and I can't reinstate that. That's done. What do I do? What do I do? Well, it was interesting, behind the scenes, I had a friend of mine in seminary who was from Alaska. And by the way, being from Alaska, he and I kept ourselves sane living in Texas by telling us stories. He'd tell me stories of what he used to do, hunting, fishing, climbing, skiing in Alaska. And I'd tell him the same for California. That's how we both kept sane while I was at Dallas. He went back to Dallas, or back to Alaska eventually. I came back out here. But um, he had been called by a, a ministry that was very popular in the 1980s called uh, Walk Through the Bible Ministry. Some of you are familiar with Bruce Wilkerson and what he did, where it was a simple walk through Old Testament, walk through. And they were wanting to start this program up in Alaska. And my friend Ken, uh, he agreed to do it. So they sent Ken from Dallas, Texas, back to Atlanta, Georgia, to get training in this. And while he was at training, he met this guy. Um, who was from California, he was a professor out in California, who was also doing this out in California. Um, and basically, uh, they hit it off, you know, and he said, look, um, you're from California. I got this friend in California. I think he's in the area you're at. He worked in the mountaineering industry. This guy's really plugged into this stuff. Uh, you ought to meet him. And uh, he said, yeah, give me, you know, give me the contact information. I'll reach out to him. Well, that was one of the professors at the master's college. And interestingly enough, he reaches out to me, and you know, we went out for breakfast one day in Santa Clarita, and I had, because I, I needed a job quick, I, I fell back into the mountaineering industry, because that's what I knew. There were many times I'm thinking, you know, I've, I've spent four years getting a seminary education to fit backpacking boots. That, that was not lost on me. And I get a call from this guy, he says, hey, well, let's get breakfast sometime. I hear you're really into the outdoors. And so we go off to this breakfast in Santa Clarita, and he, he asked me, he says, Greg, you got this seminary education. What are you doing with it? Working, you know, in a backpacking mountaineering industry. And so I kind of told him my story, and, and, you know, here's where I'm at. I said, I'm, I've been trained to do higher education. That's what I'm about. Um, but, I, it, you know, God kind of shut the door in this situation on me pretty hard. My nose is a little bit bruised by that. Certainly my spiritual ego is. And I remember sitting across breakfast, looking at me, he says, well, you ever think about working for us? Which, by the way, at the time would have probably been my top choice because I wanted to be in a place that was very serious about Scripture. And I remember, I, you know, I'm thinking to myself, this ain't happening. I said, well, yeah, I'd love to work for you guys. He said, well, come on, what are you doing now? Let's go, let's go talk to the academic dean. Now, you guys got to picture this. I'm in, I'm in a T-shirt. I'm in shorts. 
and I'm not exaggerating when I say he drags, me, he drags me into the academic dean at the university, college then, who, by the way, he's become a very good friend of mine, and, and he walks me into his office, looks him in the eye and says, this guy needs a job, and points at me. And I'm thinking in my mind, this is not the way this is supposed to go. And of course, I'm looking at the dean looking at me going, we need to talk later. I mean, look at this guy, you know. Now, interestingly enough, one job, they needed somebody to teach that fall real quickly. Hmm. And they brought me on, and they kind of liked what they saw. I said, well, can you do a couple more? Which I did. And then as the school was growing at that time in the 1980s, they said, how about full time? Which I did. And I've been there now for 37 years. God used something in Atlanta, Georgia to make that all fall into place, completely out of my control. Now, folks, I don't know where you're at. Maybe some of you guys are not in any trials at all. You're going, that's not me. I'm not in any trial. But I'm willing to guess many of you are. Many of you right now are struggling with God's control of your life. Just think of the story of Joseph. Certainly we can think of Job. A young man who had no idea what God was doing behind the scenes, but it was all working as God planned it. And I want to encourage us with that. You know, as Charlie had talked to us a few weeks about the sovereignty of God, I thought, that's a great topic, man. I'm glad you hit that, because that's something that many people will go through, and they ask the question, God, what are you doing here? And this is where the idea of faith and trust, God's plans do involve trials. And God's plans will involve testing. And God's plans will take time. And for impatient people, especially Americans, man, we are a fast food culture. We complain if it takes more than five minutes to do anything. Just try calling for service on any, like a broken refrigerator. My wife and I can tell you that story. I mean, it was an epic battle just to get a hold of a human being. My impatience. Come on, I just want to talk to a live human. It takes time. And we don't like that. But in the end, God's plans triumph. Now, I hope this morning, folks, that's an encouragement to some of you. You know, as you're going through it, you're, you're slugging through this thing, and you're trying to be faithful in your faith, and you're trying to do the right things, and, and it seems like every time you do the right thing, something bad happens. Just meditate on the life of Joseph. Now, let's wrap it up, guys, with a word of prayer, and then have the music team come back up here and conclude out our service. Let's pray. Our Father, as we think of the life of Joseph, these stories are not there to satisfy our curiosity, to just be a great story we could tell in flannel graph to the kids or make into a movie. These were real people who went through real challenges. And I think of Joseph as he probably struggled at so many points with, God, what are you doing in my life? That in the end of this, he can look back and say, that's what you were doing with my life. And you meant it for good even though it wasn't good, it wasn't fun. Uh, Father, I don't know the individual challenges that are represented in a congregation like this. I'm sure they're there. I'm positive they're there. I just pray that what I've said this morning in a small way would encourage people to persevere, to be faithful to you, and to wait on you, and to trust you. Uh, be with Matt again, and Walter, and, and all the people that are up at camps. Get them back to us safely at the right time, and may much ministry happened there. We thank you again in Christ's name. Amen.